Thank you very much, Donna. I want to encourage you, if you have your copy of the Bible, to please open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. I'll direct your attention to the passage we were in last week, verses 29 through 34. And this week we'll focus on verses 30 through 34. God is at work all around us. Sometimes we don't have eyes to see that because we're so caught up in the busyness of everyday living that we forget that God is indeed in the details. Last week I shared with you that we were making a transition. We would, as of this past Monday, no longer be under hospice care. The doctors felt like Emma had improved to the point she no longer qualified and so this past Monday was our last day. As I said, this has been a, it's a good thing, but it's a stressful thing to be sure there's a good continuity of care, that everything will, will continue without missing a beat. And we've been working with many others to that end. Well, Monday, our hospice nurse, as well as the social worker, our hospice social worker, came by for a final visit just to be sure everything was good. Jody had just prepared some sandwich stuff just as a way to say thank you to them and spend some time with them. It was a good, they've been wonderful, wonderful. Hospice is a wonderful ministry. Well, as they were getting ready to leave, we were walking them to the door in Emma's room. Now, if you've not seen the setup, there's a deck out back and a ramp that people that come to see Emma come through. That way they can avoid our, our killer chihuahuas, which is always a good thing to do. So they can really come around the house and up the ramp and then into Emma's room directly. As we were saying bye, to our friends from hospice. We are, I'm serious, we are at the door when I look and the doctor taking over Emma's care and his wife are walking up the ramp and it's as if God at that moment said, Mark, this is covered. Jody, it's going to be okay that his hospice is leaving. The new doctor is coming in and it was literally a changing of the guard at that moment. That did not happen by coincidence. God orchestrated that as a reminder that he is in the details. In church, he is in the details of your life. I know that our story may be very dramatic and very challenging, but each and every one of us is known to God. And if God oversees the rise and the fall of a sparrow, he is involved in the minute details of your life. Don't forget to look for him. And don't forget to give him glory when you see that. People say, well, I don't want to bother God with the small things. Is God really in the details? I would ask you this. What in the world is big to God? He's involved in everything. See him. Glorify his name. And he will be honored. This week, I want us to see Jesus. I hope we see that every week, but certainly in preaching in the Gospel of John. John wants Jesus to be magnified. He wants the spotlight to be clearly upon Jesus. And when we get to John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, John wants us to see from the very beginning that even before Jesus preached one word, God was at work to glorify Jesus, his son. God was working through John the Baptist so there would be no doubt from the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God. Follow with me as I read this passage. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. And Lord, my prayer is that just like John the Baptist, we would say, behold, Jesus. Give us eyes to see him. I pray in the name of our Savior. And the church said, amen. Now I recognize the name of a 19th century German philosopher is probably not a household word where you live. Many of you probably have never even thought of or heard of the philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. It's okay. Don't feel bad. But I promise you this. If you've listened to any pop music over the last 10 years, you have had a steady dose of Friedrich Nietzschean philosophy. Kelly Clarkson's song. Yes, Kelly Clarkson here. Mentioned in the pulpit. Stronger. Anyone ever heard that? Okay, now shame the devil. Tell the truth. You ever heard those lines? That which does not kill me makes me stronger. That was written by Friedrich Nietzsche. That was a large part of his philosophy. That by the will to power, you and I can overcome whatever adversity we face. We do not need a God because Nietzsche said God is dead. He's a figment of our imagination made to create structures of morality around us to determine the mores of each culture. God doesn't exist. Now, if you've not picked up on it, Frederick Nietzsche was an adamant atheist. And the question many have asked is, what led him to his atheism? This man who has cast a large shadow over thought over now over a century and a half. People have asked this because Frederick Nietzsche grew up in church. His father was a Lutheran minister. As scholars have debated what led him to his adamant atheism, a story has been told, and it's never been proven, but it's never been, been rebuffed either, that there was an instance in his life where he was seated in his church, and his father was in the pulpit preaching, and Nietzsche had reached a breaking point when he leaned to his sister, and he said these words, Does that thing up there ever laugh or cry? For Nietzsche, and he wrote this, to him the issue of Christianity was not whether it was intellectually credible. The issue for him is why, was, why were Christians so passionless? He could not understand that if Christianity were true, why would Christians live lives of desperation? Why would there not be an intense passion and joy in their lives if God were real? Nietzsche believed that one who was filled with the Spirit of God, should God exist, would be one that lived with a passion for the truth. I wonder if in our lives 
People would say we as believers are characterized by passionate intensity for Jesus Christ. Not one based on the circumstances that will ebb and flow. Not one based upon whether we are at a high point having gone to a conference or a concert where we are passionate. But in the regular routines of our life, is there a commitment to Jesus Christ that reflects a passion for Him as our Savior and our Lord? Now, Satan himself will fight against you, believer. If he can't make you evil, he will make you apathetic. So we must fight so that our passion does not become watered down by the demands of daily living. And the best way to do that, one of the best ways that you and I can remain passionate for the Lord is to encourage one another to behold Jesus. To make sure Jesus is seen. Not just the Jesus that we want or desire, but the Jesus who is. Because when John begins his gospel, he wants us to know who Jesus is from the very beginning. That's why he records the words of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To say, who is Jesus? He is the one who wins the victory you cannot win. He is the one who is given by God to be the sacrifice that you and I cannot make. But John does not stop there. He moves on, starting in verse 30, to reflect and to preach who Jesus is. He repeats something that was said earlier. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said... After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now this is not the first time John the Baptist has said this. John was a star in his age. People were coming from miles around to hear him preach. An investigative committee out of Jerusalem had been sent to investigate who he is. He was a celebrity of the day. But here is a man at the pinnacle of his popularity and he is saying it's not about me. It's about one who comes after me who is greater than me. Now remember, this is emphasized. God wants us to remember who Jesus is. Because when we see who he is, and we see the greatness of who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, there is a humility that will be born of that reality. You and I need to see Jesus so that we will live lives humbly before him. Now this is why that is important. In the scripture, it says these words, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want God to be against you, if you want heaven to be your enemy, walk around with a sense of arrogance and pride. God's opposed to that. But if you want the smile of God on your life, you want to know that God is pleased and God is working. He says, humble yourselves before him and then you will have the smile of God upon your lives. And here we see that the key to having the right attitude of humility is seeing who Jesus is. Circumstances will humble us. Every person in here, at one point in your life or another, you're going to face a circumstance you can't overcome. You're going to think you have the power and the wisdom and the ingenuity. You have the resources to overcome it. But you're going to hit that wall that says you can't overcome it. And that's humbling. But you don't have to experience those trials to live in humility. 
To live in humility is to see Jesus, to see him glorified, to see how great that he is. We need to see Jesus. Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world, 29,029 feet tall. Surveyed by Sir George Everest in 1841. First climbed in 1953 by Edmund Hillary and Norgay Tenze. 800 people a year attempt to climb the highest peak in the world. It's a climb that takes over 40 days to accomplish. But I guarantee you this, nobody goes and stands at the foot of Everest and feels big. You ever think that? Do you stand next to Everest and say, look at me, I'm something else. There's a humbling quality about the sheer size of this mountain. It's like standing in front of the ocean and thinking, I'm all that. Look at me. It's like walking into the ocean and looking at the waves and saying, stop, waves. How does that go for you? Those are things that humble us by their very being. That's the point that he's making here. It is that we are humbled when we see Jesus because humility is not walking around saying how bad I am, how horrible I am. Humility is the proper estimation of things. True humility is saying, that's who God is. This is who I am. I need help. And we need that. John says, I've come that you might recognize who Jesus is. Now the interesting thing is that in verse 31 he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now that's curious. John says, I myself did not know him. How could he make that statement? Jesus and John were first cousins. The scripture does not reveal anything about their childhoods, but I believe it is safe to say they probably met and encountered one another at family reunions. I mean, surely to goodness, they got together and had fried chicken. So how can John say, I didn't know him? John is not talking about the physical recognition of who Jesus is. He's talking about knowing the identity of Jesus. John is pointing out that one can know facts about Jesus, but still not have the faith that Jesus is the Son of God. One may know trivia about Jesus, but still not trust Him as their Savior. One may learn knowledge about Jesus, but still not know Him intimately as God in the flesh. And John is saying that recognition comes about by God you and I don't figure it out there's no spider sense that tingles that says this is divine moment it is the Spirit of God that opens our eyes to recognize the identity of Jesus and that's important remember what we just said earlier who is God opposed to the now it's not a trick question right? God is opposed to the he gives grace to the humble now, if I can walk around and I can say, I figured out who Jesus is, have I not just set myself up in a prideful stance? To say, I figured it out. I was humble enough. I was smart enough. All we can say is, God has revealed it to me so that the Spirit of God reveals to us who Jesus is. And John says, that's why I came, baptizing with water, so that God would work and point to Jesus. Now it's important that he points to Jesus not just for humility because when we see who Jesus is and we recognize who we are we know we need to be changed. 
When we behold Jesus, transformation occurs. Look at verses 32 through 33. John continues to witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Now notice the word like. Like a dove. This is a simile. It's not saying that a dove came down and landed upon Jesus. John saw some sort of physical phenomenon where the Spirit descended. And to describe that, he says it was like a dove. The Spirit descended like a dove upon him. It was like saying that if we're out here and we're watching a child run and that child is fast, we may say, that child runs like a cheetah. We're not saying that child has fur, are we? We're saying that child's fast. So to me, the question is not, was there a physical manifestation of a dove that landed on Jesus? But when John saw the Spirit descend, why does he describe it as a dove? He could have focused on power. I saw the Spirit of God descend upon Jesus like a hawk. I saw the Spirit come down like a raven. Why a dove? The scholars have debated that. I personally gravitate toward the answer that says this is reminiscent of when Noah's was on the ark. Noah was on the ark and the waters are starting to recede. And God sends out, or Noah sends out a dove and the dove returns with a branch and then a week later he sends the dove out again and now the dove doesn't return that was symbolic that the flood the wrath of God was done and now there was life that the descent of the spirit described like a dove is a reminder that now there is life there is a means by which you and I can be saved from the wrath of God that he comes bringing new life the drought of living without the spirit is done he says, now the Spirit has come. And notice how he describes it in verses 32 and 33. It descends and remains on Jesus. It means it indwelled him. There was a continuous habitation. The Spirit did not come and then leave Jesus. It's a reminder to us that out of the overflow of who Jesus is, you and I receive the Spirit of God. In a few months, we'll get to John chapter 3. I'm being optimistic that we'll get there in a few months. John chapter 3, Jesus has this discussion with Nicodemus. Talks about being born again, changed, new life. And he says these words at the end of that discussion. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now the he is the one whom God has sent. That is Jesus. So he is saying that out of the overflow of Jesus, you and I receive the Holy Spirit. And that is described in verse 33 where he says, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So now we come to that question, what does it mean when it says that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? There are some denominations, some believers, that take this to refer to a higher level of Christianity. That you are saved, and then at some point after salvation, you receive a second baptism in the Holy Spirit. That it's a second blessing given for those ready to go deeper. I do not believe that is what the scripture teaches. I believe the scripture teaches that at salvation, every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to give you reasons why I believe that. I want to start up on the screen. You'll see 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
right into this church. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He says, there's one spirit, but notice, we were all baptized into one body. How? In one spirit. This doesn't say some of you have been baptized in the Spirit and others are still waiting. It's saying there was a common experience for every believer at the Corinthian church where they were baptized into the body of Christ. How? In one Spirit. This idea of the Spirit being our baptism or being baptized in the Spirit is a description of being born again. So when he speaks of being baptized in the Spirit, it's a way of saying you are given new life because new life comes from the Spirit. Uh, go past the next slide, if you will. Let's go to John chapter 3. Jesus speaking with Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can you be born when you're old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answers, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It is the Spirit of God that gives us new life and brings about our salvation. So when it speaks of Jesus baptizing with the Spirit, he is saying it is Jesus who brings about our salvation through the Holy Spirit that transforms us so that where we were dead, we are now alive. Where we were in darkness, we are now in light. Where we were slaves, we are now free, all by the power of the Spirit of God given in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. You know that, that the gospel changes lives. Church, don't forget that. That means to never give up on the power of the Spirit to bring about transformation. That where we see a hardened heart, God can break through that hardened heart. Russell Moore put it very eloquently when he wrote that the next Billy Graham, the next great evangelist may very well be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards he might be the man in front of you with that Darwin fish bumper decal stuck on his car. The next Charles Wesley might be a, a profanity spewing, misogynistic hip hop artist. The very next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The very next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member just like the first Augustine of Hippo until God gets a hold of them. It is the power of God in the Spirit that transforms us. That allows Paul to write in 1 Corinthians where he gives this litany of sins. But he says, and such were some of you. Now the question comes then, if I have been given the new birth, why do I still struggle with sin? Okay, if I've been born again by the Spirit, I've been baptized in the Spirit because I've been saved and I'm new. Why do I still struggle with sin? A few years ago, we were having a, a cable box put in at the house. High definition, you know, all that stuff. I, I still don't know. I just discovered two weeks ago you can DVR stuff. Who knew? Who knew? They were asking us about going, putting a box upstairs. I said, I don't know. I, I don't have a clue. They said, well, let's take a look at the wiring. They said, Mr. Harriet, even if we were to put in a cable box, the wiring in your house, my house was built in the 1990s. Your wiring is too small to handle the high definition, so it simply wouldn't work, 
we've got the cable box in downstairs, we've rewired the downstairs, but the wiring upstairs is just old. You'd have to rewire everything. When we are born again, we are still wired towards sin. The Spirit's work is to rewire us so that we can handle the high-definition grace and power of God. This body is tainted by habitual patterns of sin. So when the Holy Spirit is given by Jesus, it gives us power over sin. It gives us the power to conquer sin. It gives us the power to say no to sin. The baptism of the Spirit transforms us and then allows that transformation to continue as we are changed in our decisions, in our desires, in our attitudes, and our actions. You see, if it is the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, holiness should emerge. That's the challenge. If it is the holiness of if the Holy Spirit dwells within us, it's what should emerge. I have some good friends visiting here today. They, they watched me grow up practically, cut my teeth on the ministry, and we were actually reminiscing. They lived across the street from me. They were remembering a time when something happened at the Herod household, 1988. Came back from a mission trip, serving God in New Orleans came back to find out that while we were there, while we were gone, a skunk had gotten underneath our house and had let its presence be made known, if you know exactly what I mean. There's no doubt when a skunk is near your house. There's no denying it either. So for, for a few days, just stayed indoors, did all the, you know, got everything out, bathed in tomato juice, whatever juices were recommended, finally thought I had gotten to a point where, okay, surely to goodness, I do not reek anymore. So I decided to go back to school. I was attending Cleveland State Community College, drove to school, got there early, got into the classroom, sat down. Nobody else is in the room yet. I'm the first there. A friend of mine named Jamie comes in, and she sits behind me. First thing I say is, Jamie, do you smell a skunk? No, I don't. She lied to me through her teeth. Because the very next person that came in said, I smell a skunk in here. Why, Jamie, why? Why would you lie? I immediately left. See, I was immersed in something, and there was no denying that I'd been immersed in it. There was no escaping it. It's what was there. So if the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, should we not be growing in holiness? For a believer, a person to say, I'm a believer, filled by the Holy Spirit, but there is no progression in holiness. Now, I'm not talking about you stop sinning, but there's no progression in holiness. What evidence is there then that the Spirit's dwelling within you? Martin Lloyd-Jones was certainly no Pentecostal. He was the former pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. And he stood up one day in front of his congregation. He said these words, I want to talk with you today about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You may call it what you want, but I want you to know, have, I want to know, have you experienced the fullness of the Spirit? I know all of you listening to me come as I do from a Reformed background. That's a theology that does not emphasize the filling of the Spirit. He says, I know that all of you would want to say to my question about the Holy Spirit, well, we got it at conversion. There's no need for any more experience. Well, said Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
I have only one other question to ask you. If you got it all at conversion, where in God's name is it? That's a very poignant question. And one very appropriate. Church, to be a follower of Jesus Christ means we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's not a second blessing. It's what you have as a birthright of being born again. So the question comes, are we displaying the spirit of holiness? Do our lives magnify the holiness of God? Are we living not based upon the world around us, but walking by faith? See, that's the point. Verse 34, I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. If you're waiting for another, there is no other Savior. If Jesus makes you uncomfortable and you think, I'm going to try Buddhism, I'm going to try maybe some of these other existential philosophies, hear me. They will not save you. Only the Son of God can be our Redeemer. For He is God in the flesh. Paid the penalty for your sins. Rose again. And gives the Holy Spirit. Church, I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. It's a hard-hitting question to wrestle with. Does my life show the Holy Spirit? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about perfectionism. None of us in here. In fact, the, God, the, the book of 1 John says that if we say we have no sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us. So the question is that when you do fail God, either in thought or attitude or action, are you quick to repent? Do you engage in a fight against sin? Does the spirit of holiness within you remind you, seek God, seek God, love Jesus? hate sin believer I want you to know that just as the spirit remained upon Jesus it remains upon us if, as we are in him it remains upon us what that means is the conviction will be there the comfort will be there so please hear the grace of God today that says if you are wandering away from him come home the Spirit of God is working within you to say, come home. I'm going to ask Nathan to join me here in the front also. And if you need someone to pray with you, both he and I are here today. You may just want to come and kneel at the kneeling bench. Just in prayer, you and God, to say, Lord, my heart has become hardened. Lord, I believe, but I've allowed sinful patterns to dominate my life. Habits that have formed over time, Lord, are, are, are fighting against me. Please know the Holy Spirit is at your side, dwelling within you to give freedom. Father, you alone know each and every heart in here. You know us, Father, better than we know ourselves. And I thank you that even though you know us, you do not forsake us. You cling to us. So, Father, I pray. 
I pray specifically for that believer that feels downtrodden by sin, that feels hopeless. Remind them there is hope. Remind them, Father, that the spirit you have given us, dwelling within us, is, is victory. Let us know the hope and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, as well as conviction. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together, and if you need to respond as we sing, step out and come.